themselves with many griefs. God bless the reading of the scripture. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Glad to be back with everyone today. Uh, Lorinda and I had a wonderful uh, ministry couples retreat last week. Uh, I got a chance to listen to Craig's sermon uh, on the way home, actually, the great thing about having having the sermon recorded is that before I even left uh, Cannon Beach, it was right there on my iPhone, and I got to listen to what was genuinely a, a wonderful sermon on uh, our expectancy for the afterlife, our hope. I really liked his analogy of holding to that rope between the house and the barn, and uh, you know, in the storm, you may not be able to find the way yourself, but our hope is. Our hope is Jesus, and we cling to that, even if we don't know what's going on out there. Um, If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to the sermon, go back and listen to it. It was really fantastic. This morning, uh, I have a couple of prayer requests that I want to bring to your attention. Um, Last night, I received a call. Uh, The individual has asked not to be named, uh, not, not because they're embarrassed or shy or anything, but uh, they don't want any credit for this. They, they had been thinking of a name that just kept popping up into their head, uh, a, a name from their past, someone that they loved and cared for, uh, and spent a lot of time uh, in, in things of the church together. Uh, the individual's name was Loy. Uh, many of you might know Loy Williams, who is now Loy Hunsinger. This name kept popping up, and this individual decided they needed to call her. And uh, the conversation began with, well, how are you doing, Loy? Oh, I'm all right. Things are all right. You know, I'm doing okay. Well, my, your name has popped into my head several times, and, and I prayed for you last night, and, and I just have been thinking of you. Now, the individual who told me this story, I'm probably butchering the way they told it. And Loy attributed that to the Holy Spirit because Loy's daughter, uh, Loretta, is on hospice care right now. Loretta has three daughters, Catherine, Jocelyn, and Madison, ages 13, 11, and 10. Um, and Loy is looking at this point to probably be raising her granddaughters. Um, we've been asked to pray for Loy and pray for Loretta and pray for her daughters. Um, and we're going to do that this morning. It's, uh, it's not coincidence when God directs us to talk to someone Maybe we haven't talked to for a long time. It's the Holy Spirit. And I think this morning the Holy Spirit is calling us to pray for Loy and her family. Um, this morning we also have Mariah with us. Uh, as many of you know, Mariah is also receiving hospice care. Uh, and we have no idea how long that's going to be. It, it could be weeks. It could be months. I'm praying for years. Uh, but we want to pray for Mariah We want to pray for Loy, we want to pray for Loretta, we want to pray for Catherine, Jocelyn, and Madison, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me at this time. Our Father in heaven, as Craig shared with us last week, we don't don't have all the answers to what comes when we die. A A lot of death in the afterlife is surrounded in mystery, but we do know who our hope is in. We do know that you have promised for those who have placed their hope in Jesus that there is a great and wonderful afterlife to come. In fact, Father, afterlife is probably not the right word. It is true life in you. 
that doesn't change how uh, we struggle with death in this time. There are ramifications, there are difficulties that will be faced. There are times that we will find ourselves having to change our lives entirely because someone we love has gone. Father, I pray this morning for, for Loy. I pray for Loretta. I pray for Loretta's daughters. And Father, for the, the event that they are anticipating, the losing of Loretta, the, the loss that is ahead. But Father, I pray that they find hope in your son, that they hold fast to him, that they find comfort in the promise that he offers. And Father, I pray for Mariah, and I pray for her illness. I pray for those who are providing her palliative care at this time. I pray that they, they provide her with comfort, uh, physical comfort. But Father, we know that we, as your body, can be a comfort to her. We know that your spirit, working in her and working in your children, can be a comfort to her. And we pray that she is surrounded with love, that she is welcomed warmly by your sons and daughters. And Father, as, as she anticipates what comes next, we pray that she finds great satisfaction and hope in the faith that she has in your son. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about contentment. Um, this is, this is a topic I don't think we come around to often. Bill read to us uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you read the entirety of 1 Timothy, this chapter may seem a little bit out of left field. It, it's, it's related to, and I think very clearly related to what come be, uh, came before, but it takes a, a tonal shift in some ways. Where Timothy has been instructed in ways to kind of guide and nurture the church, Timothy is here given a very clear statement about what to avoid, about the kinds of people that are the wrong sort of people. In fact, the funny thing is, a lot of 1 Timothy is focused on what the right sort of people look like. Now, there's statements in there about false teachers and avoiding false teaching, but the majority of it is encouragement to Timothy to find the right sort of people to shepherd the body of Christ, to facilitate ministry, and to himself be the right sort of person. And then chapter 6 comes along, and we begin to see this very urgent discussion from Paul about avoiding specific teachers because the way that they teach and the fruit of their teaching is the wrong sort of fruit. Uh, this particular chapter came to mind as I was thinking about uh, Thanksgiving, as I think most of us have been over the last couple of weeks. This is the ideal Thanksgiving, right? This is Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving painting. Uh, you got the gigantic turkey with the perfectly browned skin on the outside and the food coming down the aisle, although my daughter would be horribly upset about this celery, it looks like. Is that celery? I think that's celery. Uh, Emma does not like celery. She, doesn't, she likes it in things, but like plain raw celery. Our running joke is that if she's ever in trouble, all she's going to be allowed to eat is plain raw celery. And she is the most obedient child in the world. It's amazing. And she's watching at home right now. She's not feeling too well this morning. 
This is the ideal in a lot of ways, I think, in the American mind of what Thanksgiving looks like. It is a family gathered together to share in a meal. And before they've even eaten a bite, right, everyone's got a smile on their face. Yeah, there's the, the one kid, like, you can kind of see, like, he's got his hands clasped, and maybe, or, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's, like, Aunt Josie here, or if that's Grandpa Bill or whatever, but someone's got their hands clasped and they're excited about the turkey, but everyone else is kind of making eye contact with one another, and they're happy to be together, right? That's ideal Thanksgiving. Lorinda and I are going to have 14 people in our house on uh, Thursday, and, and it's been an addition every couple of weeks, and we're really excited about the people that are going to be with us. We're a little anxious about where we're going to put them all, because our living room is not that big, and we don't really have a dining room, but that's okay. We're going to figure it out. We're excited to spend time with the people that we love. To us, that's contentment. To be blessed with the things that we have already been blessed with and to find ourselves in the enjoyment of, in enjoyment of them. That's contentment. To have what you have and let that be enough. But that's not really what Thanksgiving is about anymore in many ways. Uh, I don't think that we have to think too far beyond uh, that singular day to understand what Thanksgiving is really about in the United States of America. Um, This is Black Friday, and these are people with like 43-inch TVs hoisted over their heads, grabbing them out of people's arms. There's like a, a mob to get something cheap, and to get just a little bit more, and they've you know, probably all perused the ads, and they all got there at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning on Thursday to cook a turkey. There is no way I'm going to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning on Friday to go get myself a 43-inch TV at like 25 cents. Okay, But there are people out there that want more stuff so badly that they'll get up extra early to do it. The same people who maybe won't get up extra early to you know, like make themselves breakfast will get up extra early to go and find the best deal they can on whatever it is that's on sale. And I, I want to be completely honest. Lorinda and I are not immune to this. We participated in Black Friday once. Uh, when we were newlyweds, we were still going to Cascade. Uh, and we got ourselves some little palm... PDAs. We didn't have a whole lot of money, so we didn't buy two brand new laptops for ourselves, but we could run like Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and things like that off of our little PDAs, and they had the full color screens, and we got little keyboards for them. But what we lacked was enough storage space to be able to save all of our required assignments on them. And so on Black Friday of like 2008, we woke up at like, well, okay, I say we. Lorinda woke up at like 4 o'clock in the morning, and she drove down to Radio Shack. For those that are under the age of 10, Radio Shack was a place that was magical because it had all the gadgets, and it doesn't exist anymore. And I apologize because you'll never get to experience how awesome Radio Shack was. She waited in line to buy a one gigabyte SD card for under $100. And now for those of you that are young... That was a lot at the time. That was a lot of memory at the time because we were carrying around a bunch of little floppy disks that had like 512 
kilobytes, I think, of memory on them. It was, it was not a lot of memory on these little floppy disks, but now we had one gigabyte SD cards to put in our Palm Pilots, and we, we'd type out our papers, and we were living it high. We were, this was awesome. This was amazing. And we spent under $100 for them, and we got what we wanted, and we were kind of excited about them. And of course, when you open an SD card and you spent $100 on it, and it's like this big, it's like, did we get ripped off? It's a little easier to look at the large 43-inch TV and say, I think I got my money's worth for about 100 bucks." There is something about a deal that makes us want more. We, we see what we want, and we take what we want. And then we're content. I'm not actually sure that's the case. I think, in fact, if we read Scripture, what we end up seeing is a pattern that occurs over and over and over again, is that someone sees something that looks good to them, and they take it, and the last thing that they receive is contentment. And I want to put up a slide up here. It is, it's passages from Genesis, chapter 3 through 13. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. She took of its fruit and ate. And we all know what happens next. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took for themselves wives. And we all know what happens next. The Egyptians saw that the woman, Sarah, was very beautiful, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And things don't go well for Pharaoh. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the angel or like the garden of the Lord so Lot chose it for himself. Lot sees that the land is good even though it's not been promised to him and he takes the land. You know what happens is that he finds himself embroiled first of all in the midst of a war. And then shortly thereafter, when the war has been solved and Abraham has rode off victorious over many kings, he finds himself in the middle of destruction, awaiting an apocalypse that will come on the people of the valley where he has chosen to settle. See, this is a pattern in Genesis, and if, if, you, if you need to understand something here, uh, Genesis sets up so much of the theology of Scripture in the form of stories. And we have to look for where things are repeated, for the ways in which words come up over and over again. Patterns are followed because they tell us something about what God sees as good and bad. In fact, I want you to think about that first one up there. The woman sees the tree of the knowledge, not of good and evil, but good and bad. And she gets to make a choice. Am I going to pursue that knowledge on my own terms? Because I look at it, I see it, I I want it, it's desirable to me. I will take it for myself. Or am I going to be content with what God has offered to me? In fact, isn't that really what happens in each of these cases? Eve wants something more than what God has offered to her. These sons of God, the the Nephilim, they want something that God has kept from them, maybe for a really good reason, and they take for themselves, and it is their downfall. 
And it's a part of this cataclysmic event that is the flood in Genesis chapter 6. The Egyptian king, Pharaoh, sees a woman who is beautiful and takes her for himself, and the entirety of his household is afflicted for it. It's, it's not a small situation for him. And of course, he repents, he, he turns from his ways, and he gives Abraham the rough equivalent of millions of dollars worth of valuable assets to repent for what he's done. Lot sees what he wants, and instead of choosing something humble, maybe the thing that God intended for him in the first place, he grasps the thing that is tremendously valuable, and it is his undoing. Lot is maybe the most tragic figure in the entire book of Genesis. If you want that confirmed, go read his entire story and see how it ends. And the last mention we have of Lot himself. We kind of have this mentality, I think, of see, like, take. I want more than I have. I want more than has been given to me. And maybe if I get it, I'll be happy. But you know what? We never really are. When we get that next thing, sometimes it just leaves a pit in our stomach. Did I really spend... $100 on this little piece of plastic with a silicon wafer on the inside. $100? Now I needed it. But I wanted it. I want to think for just a minute here about what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 6. And I've kind of pieced some stuff, stuff together here to give us the context of what he's saying. He begins by telling us, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, And then he tells us what this sort of person looks like, some of the characteristics that they're going to have. He says, he has an unhealthy craving. And then in verse 5, he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, you will notice I have cut out a bunch of words there, not because those words are unimportant, but for the understanding of what Paul is trying to say when he says, imagining that godless is a means of gain, we need to understand who he's talking about. If anyone teaches a different doctrine. Well, what kind of doctrines would someone teach in order to find themselves gaining? Someone might teach that you are supposed to give to them specifically so that they might be able to do the good works of God, and you know they're the ones that are supposed to amass and accumulate and then discern whether or not God has called for that accumulation to be used in a particular way. They might be teaching that you, as an individual, should be impoverished, but he is the the leader of the church, should have something to hold on to. Because it would look bad for him to be in a position where he wants. How would that reflect on Jesus and the church? And he teaches these things because he wants more than what God has given to him. You can go and read the story of Simon, uh, the sorcerer, in Acts. Uh, Simon is this magician. He, he goes out and he does great and wondrous signs. Uh, we don't know if they were real, actual magic of some kind, or if they were very impressive tricks, but he had made his entire living off of doing these, these acts. 
And when he finds out that the Holy Spirit, working through the people of God, allows them to do great and magnificent acts, what he wants is to pay the apostles to give him the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's rebuked for it. Because what he wants is to pay to get something so that then he might have more than he had when he paid to get it. He wants to profit, to gain, to have a 43-inch TV for $100. He's rebuked for it. I think there's a clear message in Scripture that we are offered. We see great men like David who look and see and take and find their own destruction. And we see men who have no position in the world like Joseph who is seen and desired and chooses not to take for himself. And as a result, is elevated to this great position. For those of you who don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph is a a slave in his master's household who has been entrusted with many things because he's trustworthy. He doesn't try to take things for himself. Instead, he just does what's best for his master. And his master's wife lusts after him because he's handsome. And when she tries to see and take He resists, and it does land him in prison, but eventually, out of his continual denial of gaining more for himself, he gains almost literally the whole world. God leads him through a series of events that elevates him to be the second most powerful man in the world, and really the only reason he's not the most powerful man is because he doesn't have the title Pharaoh. You have two types of men in Scripture, two types of ways in which a person approaches the desire to have more. Either they pursue it their entire life and find themselves ruined for it, or they say, you know what? I am content with what God would offer me, and I desire to serve him and him alone. And they prosper. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you that if you follow the words of God, that that if you deny yourself in all things, that tomorrow you are going to be made the president of the United States, or you're going to find yourself the CEO of Apple computers, or you're going to end up at, at the top of the Fortune 500. That is not the message that I want you to take away today, because if you do, then you're following in the footsteps of Eve, or David, or Pharaoh, You're wanting more than what God is offering you. Godliness is not a means. It's not a means to gain. As I think about this, I I can't help but think about what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be a thing to be grasped, taken, clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 
Not only does Jesus not see godliness as an opportunity to elevate himself, he sees giving up position in order to benefit others as the ultimate goal of his life. And so we continue. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That word money there, the, the love of money, it's all one word in Greek. What it means is the love of personal riches. The love of personal riches is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Fight the good fight of faith. That's a, that's a heading there. I copied it. I apologize. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is Paul's appeal to Timothy. There are a lot of things in this world that are going to grab your attention. There are a lot of things that are going to uh, drag you away from what it is that you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be about. There There are plenty of distractions in this life and material goods that you might try to grasp for yourself But I want you to think about the phrase that he puts in the middle there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is not a means to gain. It is great gain in and of itself. Contentment is the gain that we seek, but it's contentment not just saying, you know what, I'm never going to amount to much more, so I'm just going to be satisfied with what I have. It's a recognition that I want to be more godly. I want to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That's what I want because those are the godly things. I am content with whatever physical possessions I'm given, whatever my lot in life might be. If God carries me off to Rome and puts me in shackles, I'll be content there as long as I am pursuing godliness. I want more of that. That's what I want more of. I don't care how many 43-inch TVs you offer me for a nickel. I want godliness. Paul says, Timothy, that's what I want for you too. You want to gain, gain the right things. And so this morning as we we get ready for uh, what is the big national holiday, Black Friday, Let's be a little countercultural. Let's contemplate how instead of perhaps going and buying our children discounted price gifts on Friday, we might give them the better gifts through our examples, through our, through our life of the pursuit of godliness. We get up at 4 o'clock in the morning not to go buy a $100 SD card, but to study with them 
to pray, to worship together. How about we pursue godliness while the world pursues what they see and what they take and what they devour? That's my prayer for myself this year. That as we go into Thanksgiving, the holiday that I think we all really want to celebrate, whether we know it in our hearts or not, let's, let's pursue the things that we should be most thankful for. That God has taken those of us who struggled with greed and guilt, who struggled with seeing and taking for ourselves, who had the wrong priorities and has altered those in us, that we might, like Christ, not see godliness as something to grasp for our own gain, but instead something to be pursued right alongside contentment with the things he's already given us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would make us content people. That we're not distracted by things outside of our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. And we don't see our faith, our, our pursuit of godliness as some next step towards something even better. But instead, we see godliness itself as the gain that you have offered to us. That righteousness is gain. Humble us and help us to set aside the desire to look for more and consume more and fill ourselves with the things that we want on our terms, but instead to pursue the things that you would offer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. There are those here who would pray for you, our elders, uh, some ladies that would be happy to visit with you. Uh, If you have need of the church, feel free to join me at the back of the auditorium. I was going to lead us.